This episode is sponsored by Arc IT, and you'll find out more about them later on in the episode. This episode is also supported by Enscape, empowering your design workflow by turning your BIM model into an immersive 3D experience. Welcome to the Troxel Podcast. I'm Evan Troxel. This is the podcast where I have a conversation with guests from the architectural community and beyond to talk about the co-evolution of architecture and technology. Like the last episode, I wanted to continue to speak with people who are directly involved in the practice of architecture and how they are integrating technology, because I know a lot of listeners are either trying to do that or are doing that right now. Today, I'm speaking with Christian Giordano, who is the president and co-owner of the architecture firm Mancini Duffy in New York City. In this episode, we talk about how he came to the 100-year-old firm with a vision to modernize the company and leave the idea of a stuffy architecture firm behind, and how he ultimately changed Mancini Duffy's approach to emphasize the use of technology to transform the way designers across disciplines work. We also talk about why he launched a research and development incubator dubbed the Design Lab to bring together designers, technologists, and clients to leverage various technologies that support their practice and to break the barriers he saw that were limiting their design capabilities. And if you take a look at their client list, this approach seems to be rather successful in its outcomes. This is a great story, and it's proof that transformational change can happen in established firms, which is a message I know a lot of people need to hear. So without further ado, I bring you my conversation with Christian Giordano. Christian, welcome to the show. It's great to meet you and have you here. Evan, thank you very much for having yeah, me. <laughs> fellow podcaster, uh, not on any of the same podcasts, but you have a podcast called the Anti-Architect Podcast. You, you've got your fingers in a lot of stuff. You're running a firm. You've got this, I don't know, virtual design platform called the Tool Belt. There's a lot of stuff we could talk about today. You're also leading this firm in Talk, thinking and talking about and planning and strategizing all the return to work stuff. So there's a, there's a lot going on there. And I think, you know, the thing that that is interesting to me is you're putting yourself out there in a way that I think a lot of firm owners don't necessarily do. And so maybe we just start there. Like, how'd you get to to where you are with with that kind of an attitude, that kind of a strategy, maybe if, if it is strategy, but how, how do you perceive all that? Yeah, it's, that's an interesting question. No, nobody's actually ever posed it that way, sort of, you know, in terms of you know, getting out there. I think I've I've been kind of pushed by others to get out okay. there. I think if left up to me, it'd probably be like other, you know, other architects where, you know, you kind of stand on the work you've done, develop the relationships that you've developed, and you just kind of go with that pace. But that all kind of stays inside the firm, right? And so to me, that and that's why I asked the question because, and I assume you're going here, but this is outside of that. This is very much an outward, you're putting yourself out there. It's very vulnerable on one level, but it's also, you know, it could be strategic. Yeah, no, and it's it's become very strategic and really, you know, sort of honing the message and, and what it is that I want out there, but also being honest. And when I'm out, I'm just trying to be honest and talk naturally about what it is that we're trying to accomplish as a firm. So I would say, you know, kind of when I was working at Mancini Duffy, not owning Mancini Duffy yet, the previous ownership, specifically one individual, Tony Sharippa, uh, was very into being an architect and surrounded himself by anything and everything other architects uh, had to offer, whether that was you know AIA-related things or construction industry things, all very insular in the architecture world. And I've always... I, not that I not that I don't hang out with other architects or things like that. I, I I love the profession and I love other architects, but I've never really kind of worked in those circles. And I developed this philosophy at the firm of being the only architect in the room. 
And that's sort of the philosophy going forward. And I think I've instilled that in a lot of people at the firm. Uh, Not that it's not important to participate in all of the architecture-related things, but that 99% of the time, you should be the only architect in the room. And that's really how you're going to get yourself out there. And I think in looking at things like social media and podcasts and the interviews that I do and the talks and the articles and things I've written, that's my goal is to be the only architect, be that voice and kind of come at it from a different point of view and separate myself from the pack of traditional architecture. And and I think if you were to really look back, a lot of architects did publicity, you know, whether they did it sort of outright and they, you know, uh, said that they were doing it, but it isn't just sort of natural selection that made a famous architect famous. And yes, their talent is amazing and all of that sort of stuff, but they publicized their work and they got in with the right publishers or the right architecture magazines at the time. And there were those channels that they um, that they pursued. They kind of really got them out there and enhanced the, what they were doing. And really, that's the goal on, on our end here is to get myself and some of my partners out there and be, you know, kind of come at it from a different perspective. It seems like that helps reduce the size of the echo chamber, which I think can be dangerous in some levels, which is Look, we all think the same. We all we have the same, you know, like we say, like-minded. And I think while comfortable, that is a that's definitely a comfortable situation to be in when you kind of know how to finish each other's sentences and things like that. It's also very dangerous because you don't get those outside perspectives and you're I don't know, I I'm trying to think about how to say this right because I don't want it to come off wrong, but but you don't want your perspective to get watered down amongst when you're trying to sell your value as an architect. And so if you're constantly being seen as with this other group that thinks very similarly and acts very similarly, then it is very hard to kind of show your unique value. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And then on the other end, you know, it's, I know as a firm, we do amazing work and we have amazing people. And, you know, in this day and age, you've got to compete, especially, you know, post-COVID with, you know, the very, very large firms. We're, we're a large firm. I mean, we're, we're 80 plus people now. And so, therefore, we get lumped in with, you know, the Genslers and the Perkins Eastmans and these, you know, thousands and thousands of, of firms. And how do we separate ourselves from that, right? How do we tell our story and then convince clients that, you know, we can do just as good a job as those big firms. Oh, and by the way, the there's only five people at those firms working on your job anyway, and we've got five people. So really the team is no different. Mm-hmm. Um, and just because there's a horsepower that's even bigger than ours doesn't mean that we're going to do any better or worse of a job. So I think by getting out there and really putting myself out there, and kind of, you know, sort of saying that, hey, we're actually bigger than we are. Look at all of these things that we do. Uh, I think it gives us even more of a platform to compete head to head with those really large firms. Interesting. Interesting. So it seems to me that you've got kind of a media mentality about this from a media lens, from a, I, I mean, I'll just say it, a clickbait kind of a lens. You, you've got a, a podcast called the Anti-Architect Podcast. <laughs> Right. And and your bio says you are the most innovative person in architecture today. Right. <clears throat> and so I, I I think I know where that's coming from. But but I would love to hear your where you're coming from, from your own words. Yeah. So the obviously the idea of the anti architect is that it's supposed to be catchy. And I think most people get it. Uh, but I have had pushback from from other architects or people, you know, sort of on the outskirts of the industry. You know, oh my goodness, are you are you anti-architects? Are are you or, or now people I've I say, oh, this is Christian. He's the anti-architect, which is kind of a weird, yeah. you know, a weird statement. But no, it's meant to be kind of catch your eye. And then the podcast itself 
I do want to make it a critical look at the profession. You know, and I do ask certain questions and there are certain themes that emerge within the podcast from those questions that I think are going to make an interesting story at some point, either an article or a book or or who knows kind of where it, where it ends up going. But, you know, if I ask a certain type of question, like one of my one of the questions I ask a lot of people is, you know, uh, what annoys you about architects? And I think most people can answer that question when they when they think Correct. about it. There are there is some annoying things about architects. We know ourselves pretty well. Yeah. We yeah. do, absolutely, yeah. right? I mean, it's not that hard. And then, you know, what do architects do well? What do they not do well? And there's common themes that emerge throughout. And I think overall, as a body of work, when it's all said and done, I think it'll actually be quite helpful for architects to hear from a, themselves, um, because there's plenty of architects that come on the podcast, engineers, consultants, I've had lawyers, I have, uh, you know, other, you know, everyone that kind of touches the profession, give some sort of critique of what we do well and what we don't do well. And with its shared stories, or, you know, whether they're good stories or bad stories, that can all be learned from. And there's some value in that, and I think that'll help push the profession forward. And I say, one thing that comes up a lot in that podcast is the idea that architects have given away so much of their profession, and we're not sure why. You know, why have we given away lighting design or certain specifications of things? Or, you know, architects kind of used to know all of these aspects of things, and why are we, why do we get, you know, just kind of push that off on someone else. Even the project managers that I've had on have said, you know, you architects created this profession for us because you didn't want to do it anymore, kind of manage the client. And I always, I thought that was interesting. Both project managers I had on from two different large companies essentially said the, the same thing. And then listen, the idea of, you know, being the most innovative person, that comes quite frankly from you know, the Michael Jackson and the, you know, the, the Howard Stern, the king of all media, the king of you pop. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. You might as well claim it, right? And, uh, and, and run with it. If, if, not, if not me, then it'll be someone else. So why not it just be me? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. It's like Kanye. He's got a picture of himself in his own foyer of his house. And, and someone was like, why do you have a picture of yourself in the foyer? And he's like... Because if I don't praise me, how can I expect other people to? <laughs> so, so okay, so let's talk about how you climbed the ladder at Mancini Duffy, right? Because to me, having these kind of provocative thoughts and ideals um, and putting yourself out there, I'm sure played a part in that, but I'm sure it also, it, it can't win everybody's favor. So I'm sure that there was some complications along the path working how, how long have you been at mancini now so i've been at mancini 10 okay. years and before that i was with a a, a large international architecture firm called hlw international okay. uh, i was with them for i think 15 years or so okay. so yeah. so when you're when you joined mancini to where you are now can you kind of just express how that journey went for you and maybe how some some critical pieces in there that you thought of to kind of navigate that because i can imagine a lot of listeners out there i mean you're you're obviously an owner in this firm and that is that takes time number one but it also takes an internal strategy and you've uh, we've already talked about kind of this external strategy which i think a lot of firms don't necessarily have a respect for as much as the internal politics in the in that journey i think it's it's a huge part in actually being able to fulfill that that kind of rise within a corporate structure, which is how are you perceived in the profession at large? Like I said, I don't think that they necessarily appreciate that as much, but I think that for you, that had to be a key component. Yeah, I, I and I'll kind of go back to HLW because that's really where I, you know, kind of learned how to do everything. And I, I credit them um, with making me kind of who I am as as a professional, as a designer, and then ultimately as a manager. You know, when I went to HLW, I think I went there as a designer. I think that was my mm -hmm. title. And one thing about them is they were growing at the time and probably still growing, I would assume. And, you know, they threw you into the mix. 
And I, I think I kind of have a lot of that mentality too at, at Mancini. We, you know, at the time it was, hey, there was a, a developer, they need a designer. And I, I would always step up to the plate. And I think that's my message. And even though, and I, listen, I'm not, you know, I, while I say I'm the most innovative person, I, you know, put all this stuff about myself out on Instagram and, and LinkedIn. The reality is I'm not a super confident person. I've become more confident over the years and I've learned how to, to be outwardly confident. But inward, I'm always honest with myself. You know, can I really do this? I don't know. I've never done this before. How am I going to do it? But man, I just worked. I mean, my my wife will tell you this uh, to this day. I work and work and work. And, you know, at HLW, if I had an opportunity, I stepped up and I took it. And I said, no, I can I can do that. I can, Or I can do that myself. Or I can maybe, can I have a junior person to work with me and we'll do it together. And that kind of hard work and really always volunteering to be at the head of the line or forcing my way into project meetings with clients and saying to, if there was a senior designer or a, a design director, on the team saying, hey, when when we get to the plans, can I present my part? Mm-hmm. You know, and them again, to their credit, always being gracious enough to say, sure, no problem. There was really no ego there where someone had to be the king and, you know, present every little little detail. And I think, you know, looking back and kind of the way that we work now and the way that I work now, sort of the more people that participate, especially those that have actually done the work can talk about the work, the more genuine it comes across. And I think that's what kind of happened is as I worked my way up at HLW and presenting to clients and then, you know, being a little part of the team and then a bigger part of the team and then running the team and then running the design and then running the studio, you know, all these things begin began to give me confidence in my actual design ability and then what it really gave me confidence in was my ability to express my thoughts and my ideas both on paper and then with the spoken word and talk about these things and i know it's a bad word but sell my design and then it ultimately became selling myself as the designer or whatever it is that we were trying to ultimately sell and then ultimately selling and trying to win work mm. and doing more business development. So by the time I end up going to Mancini Duffy, I had managed a studio at HLW. I had done a lot of work in China, Shanghai, China, where I had, you know, we used to take these shifts where we would go for three or four weeks and then I'd come back and then another designer would go for three or four weeks and then I'd go back to China and it was this constant flow, kind of running the studio there, running the studio in New York City. And all the while being encouraged to go out and try to get my own clients and win some work little by little. So by the time I get to Mancini, I've managed groups of people. I've kind of brought in my own work along the way. Um, And I've told this before on other podcasts. I had a thriving side business going on at HLW. I mean, I did enormous apartments, houses. I I would just kind of, oh, as I said, I would work. And so that also gave me the ability, well, I could do it on my own as a one-man shop. I can do it as a firm. You know, maybe, maybe I should go out on my own. Maybe I shouldn't. I don't really want to do houses and, and apartments for my entire career. And do I really want to start that small? I like big work. I like the big complex jobs. And so Mancini comes along and they say to me, well, we're looking for a guy, you know, I was I was under 40 at the time, under 40 to come and really kind of breathe new life into this, you know, firm that's got a bunch of people that are looking to retire. It's got a really great name. They do beautiful work. Can you come and kind of lead that effort and lead it into the next generation, whatever that means? And I thought, okay, well, that's an interesting challenge. I could go out on my own. I could go here. Maybe this is kind of the best of both worlds. And I took the leap and went to Mancini. And uh, when I got there, you know, it was, I had to kind of reinvent the firm, Mm. quite frankly. And there was uh, people that were 
definitely looking to retire. There were disgruntled employees. There was, you know, clients that had been there for a long time, but, you know, kind of kept a loyalty, but didn't necessarily love the design aspects of what we were doing. And so, you know, little by little by little, we began to reinvent that. And I found commonalities with people that I liked working with there. And we kind of all brought the the whole organization up to the next level. There's so many directions I could go with this, but I think right where you ended there is, <laughs> Sorry, no, I'm this rambling. is great. I, I think that the, the idea of reinventing a firm is, is I, I want to get your take on why you felt that that was necessary. And then if other firms should be looking at that too, like how important was it? I, it sounds to me like it was the most important thing, the way that you just said that, like you, it couldn't go on like it was, especially if somebody else was going to be taking the lead. So can you walk through why you felt like that was the solution and then maybe how you, how you did it? Because that's, that's the hard part, right? Actually following through and doing that is, is a monumental task. I think when when I first got to Mancini and people would say, oh, you're at Mancini, I didn't think they were still in business. Mm. You know, that definitely was the, <laughs> the uh -oh, the <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> what are you talking about? There's 40 plus people that work here. You know, we're, we're doing a decent chunk of revenue. We've got a lot of clients and cool projects. So we're very much in business. Uh, sounds like we need to tell that story. And so... Luckily, sort of early on in the process, Tony Sharippa and Dina Frank were the two owners of the company. And Ralph Mancini himself had retired. He retired when his wife uh, got ill in 2006. And um, really, it was Tony and Dina running the firm. And, 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 you know, I've been very fortunate along the way. So Tony and Dina were extremely open to change. I will tell you that Tony in particular didn't always agree with my ideas and my change, but he knew it needed to be done, right? For, for whether that was because he wanted to see the firm succeed for the long term or he wanted to see the, the firm succeed in the short term so that he could sell out and retire, right? Well, either way, it didn't really matter. And it was probably a combination of both. And so we began to you know, look for new types of clients, right? Tech and media clients, more um, architecture clients. The firm was very focused on financial services, uh, interior design. I mean, it was about as narrow of an interior design sort of firm as it got. And that was really hurt in the 2008 recession. The firm took a, it really took a beating along the way. And so, you know, when I came in, I came in with, I had worked on Google, I had worked with Disney, I had, you know, done all this kind of work. And I had always, my entire career, for whatever reason it's been, I would work on interiors, and I would also work on base building out of the ground architecture. It's always been this bifurcated uh, design strategy of mine, whether it was or it was just the opportunities. And that's what we did. We set out to say, okay, this firm is no longer just an interior design firm. We're going to do tech and media work. We're going to do residential. We're going to do hotels. And that really began to evolve into different business lines. From there, what we did was, and, and I, you know, my partners, Bill Mandera and Scott Harrell, they were sort of the people I gravitated toward when I first moved to the firm. You know, we identified that, okay, there's these opportunities of the types of projects that are coming in, and there's all of these really young, talented people without the, with, within the firm um, that seem to really want to step up. And so we started saying to people, you know, are you interested in running a studio based on this line of business? Are you interested in, you know, developing a, a practice area based on, you know, kind of the opportunities that we're getting here? And everyone really started to become very interested in not only just the day-to-day -day work, but this idea of developing more business and growing the firm. We set out to, we put a plan together. We hired an executive coach, which was an interesting experience. We used him for about a year and a half. He was tough. I think we still have PSD from him um, when, we, when we talk about him. Mm -hmm. But he kind of set us up with a structure and a, and a, a rigid um, system that we would be able to grow the firm in. And so we set out to have a one-year goal, 
a three-year goal, and then a five-year goal. And we we literally, honestly, up until the pandemic, we were accomplishing those things, you know, perfectly well and growing the firm, sort of year over year, revenue, people-wise, uh, and growing the the younger people within the firm, giving them the access to start additional business units. And that whole sort of growth within blossoming people, putting people in positions that they weren't yet ready to fill really made us a very tightly, you know, bonded group that to this day, you know, it's still the same group from 10 years ago uh, that's grown this firm. And and I will say during the pandemic, while it was certainly a shot in the in the gut, you know, within 6 months, you know, the the dust settled and we realigned our strategy and I, through this year, this year has actually been a very good year for us. Uh, I I didn't think so going in, um, but going into 2022, you know we're 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 looking to double the size of the firm by the end of the year. I mean we're really cranking on all cylinders here, and things have really gelled uh, in a way that I would have never never expected. Interesting. So how important? It sounds like that reinvention was very important. I mean, obviously this has set you on a different trajectory. So there was lots of people who were there before you got there. How open were they? to this type of change from within? So I would say the the people that when I first got there, other than maybe some of the key leadership that stayed um, with us as we've moved forward, I have to say that mostly everybody has changed over in the last, well, really, it was really in the, in the beginning, right? In the first, let's say, three to five years. The last five years, we've been very consistent uh, in in sort of keeping people on staff uh, and and providing them with a you know a career path that that's meaningful to them, but early on there was definitely a lot of turnover and it was intentional in many respects. Uh, some it just you know people just didn't want to be there for the turmoil, you know sort of the change makes people nervous, which I totally understand. I would I would have felt the same way. So it's it's certainly you know changed over time but but for the better and and I, I would say as we begin we've we've gotten really good at hiring and I think what's changed for us in hiring is that uh, we're all involved rather than it just coming from the top or just coming from sort of the middle management area we identify we all interview people we have a process that we go through we really focus on will this person fit and that is the most important thing we 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 an experience just very, very recently of someone that came very highly recommended and seems like a very talented person, which is we just didn't think they'd fit mm-hmm. in. And so no matter what we we pass on that strategy, mm-hmm. a lot of that is from that original coach that we mm-hmm. hired that, you know, you he had a very, very militant way of analyzing people. It was actually called a people analyzer. And if I never forget the exercise we did, we had to evaluate every single person. And if they didn't check off in this box all of these characteristics, that same day after that meeting, we were supposed to go and fire wow. everybody that didn't that didn't fit that, uh, you know, which That's was like tough. crazy. So, but ironically, even though we didn't do it that day, it all eventually happened, right? <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh man, this is like this is like a, a reality show, right? <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. It was rough. I bet. I bet. Architecture is slow to change. Right? Firms are slow to change. And what's interesting to me is our projects take a long time too. Like we're used to this pace, I think. And I think sticking with a plan over that amount of time is hard for a lot of firms to deal with. And because there's so much pressure from the outside to, you know, quote unquote, see results and to see these metrics. And then if they aren't happening, it becomes easy to come up with excuses of how you can and will abandon this plan before it actually happens. And so maybe there's something in there that you could speak to regarding the timeline that it takes to accomplish change. Because I I think about like music artists are a good example of having to reinvent themselves if they choose to. I think about the Beatles, like every album is a completely different Beatles. And 
Madonna, like famous for reinventing herself. Like <laughs> you can showing my age, like these are the bands that I care about. There's, there's great examples. Like U2 is a great example, completely reinventing themselves from album to album. So if a, for a firm to do that and for the, you know, during the course of ongoing projects that are taking, you know, two to five years, every single one of them, they're all on a different timeline. There's got to be some consistency in that process while this turmoil potentially is happening on the inside and kind of staying the course throughout all that has got, there's got to be some interesting tidbits to pull out of that. Yeah. And I would say sort of reinvention is different than, you know, coming up with a business plan and sticking to it. Right. I, I kind of think of those as two different uh, tracks and they can almost exist simultaneously. At HLW, and I don't want to say anything bad about them, but I felt like they were constantly reinventing both themselves and their business plan yearly. And, you know, in the beginning of the kind year... Of an identity crisis on all levels. Yes. Yeah, we'd right. roll out a new thing that said, hey, you know, now we remember all that stuff we said last year, forget all that. We're doing this now, you know? And then, so I, I try to be very consistent, uh, even when we you know, things like, you know, what do we stand for? What's our mission? What's our goals? What's our values? Things like that. Really trying to, you know, we identified them. Let's stick with them. Let's not change them year over year because then they don't mean anything. And I think the beauty of the business plan, the one year, and and this coach was phenomenal in this respect where we had a one-page business plan. Every single thing that you were going to accomplish for the next three years was on one page. It had to fit on one page. Um, so it really you know, focused you and you got very clear as to what your goals were. So from revenue goals to people goals to you know, uh, bigger picture goals to projects or, or whatever it might have been, it was all there. And it was very accomplishable, right? Where there was a one-year plan, and a three-year plan. And then honestly, we had a five-year plan, but really what he wanted to focus on was a 30-year plan. So this idea that you had you know, those goals that could be accomplished within the single year, where you wanted to be in three years, but then where did you really want to be when you grew up? What were sort of those things that were way out there? And I think that's, that's what led us to the technology side of you know, everything that we do you know, and being a tech-focused architecture firm. Because as we would begin all the planning and, you know, think about, well, where did we want to be in the future? Well, all of the sort of revenue and, and yes, that was all fine. Um, and, and projects, that was fine. But really, what did we want to be in 30 years? Well, we wanted to be all these other, you know, aspirational things. And one of them was, this idea of technology that we really wanted to grow certain little aspects of the design process that we were thinking we were reinventing. Well, we really want to reinvent them. So in 30 years, if we look back, we'd go, wow, we really reinvented the design process. That's cool. That that's where we want to be. And so I think, you know, kind of keeping that business plan as something achievable is an important thing to do. And it's important for me at least was to share it with the entire firm. And say, you know, hey, this year we're going to be twenty million dollars in revenue. We're going to have one hundred and five people, and you know, this is the profit that we're looking to get, and this is where that profit is going to go. You're going to get it as a bonus in your paycheck, but it's also going to go back into reinvesting into the firm, and really spelling out sort of, you know, an entire year upfront and sticking to that plan, and then showing. We showed we always do this. We show quarterly progress towards that plan. We literally show how many dollars came in, how many dollars went out, where the money's going, how it's being distributed back, whether it's into the firm or as you know bonuses or whatever it might be. And hey, look, we're on plan or hey, look, we're not on plan, but this is how we're going to get to plan, things like that. And then everyone felt like they were, because honestly, they are, whether they know it or not, they're part of the plan. Let's take a short break from the conversation to talk about this episode's sponsor. Enscape is a leading real-time rendering and virtual reality tool for the global AEC market. It plugs directly into your modeling software, giving you an integrated design and visualization process. With Enscape, you can render in real-time and walk stakeholders through your rendered model with incredible ease. Now buildings can be experienced long before they're built. 
And I have to add here that it's fun to use. Seriously, you cannot underestimate this. It's what makes this tool so amazing. This is something that most CAD and rendering programs can't claim. It democratizes your ability to create beautiful renderings at any time during the design process and use it as a tool to make valuable decisions during design. And as my friend Clifton Harness of TestFit says, it's one of the few well-established companies open to innovating in AEC. And you can see the outcome of this, where his company recently showed off how they were able to take advantage of the new Enscape SDK to incorporate the real-time renderer with TestFit. More than 200,000 unique monthly users from over 150 countries use Enscape to envision better designs. Don't be left out. To learn more or sign up for a free 14-day trial, visit enscape3d.com slash trxl today. That's enscape3d.com slash trxl. I had the pleasure of speaking with Boris and Alex over at ArcIT, and one of the threads of conversation that we had that I think we can all kind of relate to is that a lot of IT providers rely on you to be too much of an expert in this stuff, and they don't really understand the technology that makes your business work. And I think one thing that makes ArcIT a little bit different in that regard is that they understand the architecture and engineering space. And that's why I really felt like they're a great fit for this audience. So as business owners and architects, how often do we think about our IT provider? Typically, only when things go wrong. And for many of us, unfortunately, this happens too often, especially with the latest emphasis on remote work. I know that I've had to deal with my fair share of IT fire drills, even this morning, trying to resolve a domain name issue. Not pleasant. ArcIT, however, is a very different kind of company. They specialize in serving architecture, design, and engineering firms, and their goal is to help you use technology as a competitive advantage. This means that they understand your technology stack, and they won't waste your time and money learning how your tools work within your process. Combine that with industry-leading response times, proactive remote hardware management, and solid disaster recovery and backup solutions. That's something that everybody should be thinking of, honestly. And enterprise-grade security management. And yet, above all, these are just table stakes for a solid IT company. ArcIT goes a step further. They become your strategic partner when it comes to planning, budgeting, and integrating new technology into your business processes. And that, again, this is something that I love about ArcIT is that they're being proactive. They're not waiting for the fires to come up. They're helping you plan for your future. So all of this sounds expensive, right? Nope, because ArcIT is highly specialized for our industry. Their pricing is on par or in some cases even lower than other IT providers. ArcIT is transparent and even publishes the pricing right on their website. Uh, Speaking of their website, there's also something else you should check out when you're there, and that is their Design Under Influence blog and video series. Again, adding value to IT-type solutions, I think, across industry, all good stuff. So your business deserves a competent, responsive, and proactive IT partner. Reach out to my friends at ArcIT for a free consultation. So go to GetArcIT, that's G-E-T-A-R-C-H-I-T dot com arc-like architecture in the middle, and click work with us. And now let's get back to our conversation. Yeah, I was going to ask you if there's obviously the role on the project, which a lot of people are hyper aware of, uh, hopefully, <laughs> from a day-to-day because that that ends up becoming the lifeblood of the business. But showing them how they fit into the overall strategy of the business is something I don't know. I don't want to say I don't hear that, but we I'm sure we don't hear that enough in this profession. And so maybe there's something there. I mean, did you see people latching onto that? I can I can probably assume that some of it is to create either a clear alignment between them as an employee of the firm and the firm itself to say, look, we're all on the same page. There's a layer of a level of transparency here. So you know why we're doing what we're doing. You understand why we're making these decisions. But then also to say, like, this is what we're doing very openly. Are you on board or do you need to get off this train because you don't agree with it? Correct. I think it's ironically, I would have I would have answered this differently 10 years mm-hmm. ago. Um, I would have said it was really transparency so that everyone would just 
be aware of what's going on in the firm and that would create a better firm culture. But I think the more that I shared and the more transparent I was, the more I realized that that actually frightened some people and they were probably not the right people for our firm. And that it, there were those that then the more we shared and the more transparent we were that saw opportunity for themselves and for the firm and would would literally step up and say, well, I see that we're, we've gotten two educational projects now. I'm really, I really loved working on those kind of projects. I would like to see if I could help grow that practice area. Can we do that? And, and can you, basically, can you invest in me and my time uh, and some resources to help me get to that? And if anyone ever asks for, you know, asks for something as far as resources, we are absolutely, you know, we jump on that instantaneously. It's how we created an entire aviation division for ourselves, is that we had done an American Airlines lounge. Um, I don't even remember quite how we got that project, but the project manager afterwards said, I love working at the airport. I would love to make this my entire career. And from there, we're, wow. we're in you know, 10 airports now doing work. Yeah. And, you know, he, he cracks me up where he says the only guy that he gets, gets excited to go to the airport and not travel anywhere, you know, turns around two hours later and goes home <laughs> or, or fly, flies from New York to Boston, never leaves the airport and flies back, you know, like day after day. It's a, it's an interesting, uh, interesting life, but he loves it. And then speaking, kind of going back to the plan, right? Designing a business plan around that. Well, what does it take to get in the aviation sector. And I personally think it takes three years to build anything. It doesn't matter what it is, uh, any kind of brand, any kind of, and that's probably light, but to really get a foothold and to start getting real opportunities like in the aviation sector or in K through 12, you know, it's taken three years for people to kind of get off the ground mm -hmm. and, and see a path to profitability and a path to, you know, the next big thing. And, Starting small, celebrating those wins, getting a team that you can trust that's interested in those things. And then every win becomes a little bigger and a little bigger and a little bigger. And you celebrate each time. And before you know it, you're doing, you know, you're, you know, we're now going after entire airport terminals, small airport terminals, sort of, let's call them, you know, small tier airports. But let's get a few under the of those under our belt, and then we'll go after the big guys. You but know, always and, having and try that, to do a terminal. That long game perspective is super important because otherwise, if you get too caught up in that small win thing, and those small wins stop happening, then it becomes yep. easy to abandon that plan and look elsewhere where something might be more attractive at the time. Absolutely, and 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 you know the I I talk about that all the time. I've got. I have 20 more years left in this profession, at least, if not more. And, you know, let's, let's enjoy those 20 years. Let's, it's about the journey and let's, let's identify what we want to do along the Life's way. And we're all it. in it for yeah. the long game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, one of the things, you know, we talked a minute ago about this, but connecting people's day-to-day -day work on projects to the overall business strategy is something that I just don't see a lot. So have you have you seen rewards coming from that specifically? Like you talked about this. Obviously, there's a great example in the in the airport thing. What else? How in what other ways have has by opening those doors and letting people know how they help not just their project, but the whole business accomplish something that you can accomplish because you're a a whole group of people and not just a few individuals. Yeah. And I, I think that honestly goes to the tech side of things where, you know, probably now going back, the pandemic kind of messes yeah. me up as There's, far as timelines time. are gone, man. <laughs> I seem to have lost a few <laughs> things in there, but a few years in there, but it's probably six years ago now when we identified that, well, we wanted to, we have all this idea about technology and and how to how to use in in our case it was we wanted to pursue 3D printing was the original thing we wanted to do i said you know i want to start 3D printing you know parts of our projects uh, we had gone to a three uh, three form is not three form um, i'm blanking on their name the the major 3D printer and so we were we were at their conference and we we 
learned all about their 3D printers and they said, well, uh, my, my guy, Michael Kipfer said, how come you don't have any architects on your panel discussion? And they said, well, architects don't really use our 3D printers for anything other than printing cute little models of their buildings. You don't really do anything all that interesting. So we don't really have architects on our uh, Shots panel. Fired. Said, oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. <laughs> So, you know, he and I talked about this and we wanted to, I think our original idea was we were going to start 3D printing furniture. That was going to be what we were going to do. Full scale furniture Uh, you're talking about? Full scale furniture. We're going to start 3D printing furniture. And what happened was that evolved into, well, maybe it's not quite 3D printed furniture that we could do, but maybe we can start printing some lighting or maybe we could start doing some uh, wall panels and things like that. And so we developed, a. we literally started an R&D department where we said in that R&D department, okay, we're going to give this R&D department, we're going to treat it like any other business. We're going to give it a three-year plan. And in, a, and in three years' time, this R&D department needs to make a million dollars to show ourselves that it's, it's at all, it's valuable to the entire firm because we're going to throw a lot of resources at it. So we got a bunch of 3D printers and Somewhere along the line, we began to realize that, well, we're doing all this work in Revit and virtual reality was sort of coming in and I had, I had seen something about VR. And so everyone in the, in the design lab, which is what we call it, that R&D facility said, well, let's, let's start looking at VR, what we can do with VR. And so as it evolved, we, we hired a, a separate programmer that was an architecture he teaches at Pratt. And he would start figuring out how to connect Revit and the VR system. And all of a sudden, the 3D printing kind of went away. And next thing you know, it we are developing software. And so we, we've done that. I mean, we're, we have a patent pending piece of software that, you know, essentially connects Revit and our own proprietary rendering system for virtual reality, where you can, you know, have a meeting in VR via the internet, or you can have it where you come into our office and put on a headset. We've now rolled that out to our other offices. But I think back to your original question is, how does it affect the entire firm? It became it became our process and it became less about the cool side of the technology and less about, you know, the fact that clients were putting on VR and experiencing their, you know, their design. It was actually the process that we developed. So we retrained every designer in this process to work within our software. And we, you know, every project manager, you know, when they put a fee plan together, they put a fee plan that is associated with this separate design track that you're going to take that makes us even more competitive in terms of pricing, right? Limits the amount of hours that we're going to put in on certain things. And, or, or in some cases, it's more hours and there's more value that we're going to show. And that's why we're going to do it this way as opposed to a traditional method. And the entire firm got behind this idea that, oh, wait, you know, we do things totally differently than, than another firm. So when we go to a pitch and we're selling ourselves, you know, and that dreaded question of, well, what makes you different from the other firm? And, you know, I used to kind of, well, we're, we're cool and we're young and look at you this actually cool have thing an answer. we just did. You have an answer. I go, yeah, well, we have a totally different process. It's patent pending. We're the only ones that do it. And this is how we do it. And this is what you're going to get. This is the value we bring to the table. And that's something that the entire firm has bought into along the way. And I think it, it goes back to that original question is how, how did we, how do we do that with the transparency? Is it, it started really small from the idea of printing a 3D chair that somehow it evolved into a completely design, a completely different design process uh, that everyone's bought into uh, because we showed the value of doing it. And from there, now we've got all sorts of new initiatives and additional programmers and developers, and we're in the process of hiring someone else for that. We're experimenting with robots. We've got, you know, we got a whole a whole thing going on there that makes coming to work super exciting. And we're actually moving our office and we're designing a new office and our new office is going to be centered around all of this technology. Like the R&D aspect you know, the, of The it. idea, yeah, yeah. The heads down work stuff, you're going to be able to do that at home and 
you know, come in and kind of hang out in certain areas, but the office is going to be meant for this technology and this process. That's interesting. You'd think about an office as a resource that can only do what it can do where, because you can do this other work anywhere, right? Like that, that to me is not enough firms have been thinking about that over the last few couple of years, especially where nobody was in those offices and the rent was continuing to be paid and the HVAC was still running and the lights were still coming on every day because they're on a sensor and no one's there. It's like, well, what's the purpose of an office? Well, there is a purpose for an office, but you can make it even more purposeful, right? And and then utilize these home offices for what they're good for too. Yeah, yeah there's got to be a reason for people to come to work, especially at an architecture mm-hmm. firm. I, I'm a big believer in working in an office um, just for cultural reasons. And I think for what we do, you know, you've got to learn from the guy next to you, the girl next to you, the person that, you know, the the person that knows how to detail something, the person that knows how to draw something, that interaction is very important, especially there is a lot of mentorship that goes on in our profession and it's important, but the reality is you could probably still do 50% of it, you know, kind of by yourself, the heads down work part. I want to go back to the tech stuff because the, I was, I wanted to ask you why the tech stuff was important to you. And I know that you have started to talk about using that as a way to show that you're uh, your firm is different than others. It's the quote unquote differentiator, right? Like, but, but what, what is the why really behind it? Cause you talked even earlier about knowing you needed to go through this transformation. You wanted to infuse technology into a firm that's been around for a long time. Why? Like, what is, what have you seen come out of that? Because there's a lot of firms, I mean, and I guess this is potential other digression, which is, you said everybody was on board. And I also think that is rare. Like, where did you find these very special people who are everybody's willing to get on the same <laughs> the same page about everything? Because there, there's definitely people who are more, have a higher tendency to be early adopters to things. And then there's, you know, we've all seen the curve about the, the late majority and the laggards and everything. It seems like a lot of people in firms tend to be towards the right side of that scale, which is the later part of adoption. But it sounds like you have somehow created a culture where you tend to be more on the front loaded side of that curve. How did that happen? And then, you know, and why is technology important to Mancini Duffy? Yeah. So I think the reason why let's talk about sort of why everyone got on board with it. I mean, we are a young firm and, you know, we, we haven't reached that that point where we have a bunch of the old masters that are still around um, and saying, no, young, young fella, you know, you, you need to do it the way I did that's it. That's the way we've know, always back. done it. Yeah. Right. right. And so we've been very easy to adapt along the way. Now, who knows? We may be in 15 years and be like, oh, back in our <laughs> yeah. day. You that's, know, and, that's the next set of questions. How open are you to, to being disrupted from inside? Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. So, but, but we were lucky in that respect. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that I was young when I took over the ownership of the firm and we kind of brought everybody up together as a group. And we kind of called it the, you know, the classes of people that have come up, the the graduating class and everyone kind of saw in the vision and how we would get there. And so I, I think part of that was just pure luck. And listen, people have left along the way and I'm sure, you know, gone on to do other things. Ralph Mancini himself, uh, and I, I only knew him towards the, the latter part of his life, he was a very progressive guy. I, I mean, he Ralph was not an architect. You know, he was really a business guy uh, that was a good draftsman that somehow, you know, made his way into the architecture world. And, and people loved him. He was a salesman. And when he would come into the office, Ralph didn't have a desk, never did heads down work. He didn't answer emails. He would go around and, you know, sit at every, sit next to somebody and chat with them. How you doing? What are you working on? Oh, that's great. You know, and tell you all about the client. And then he'd move on to the next person. And he would always say, you know, you've got to, you've got to stand out. You've got to, you've got to separate yourself in some way. And he, he, his famous quote was, uh, you know, I don't care if you have to show up naked at the presentation, but somehow you have to differentiate yourself. <laughs> and so that kind of thing always stuck out to me. Okay, we have to differentiate ourselves. And I think going back to 
you know, the, the podcast and the, this idea of the anti-architect, um, coming at things with the idea that we want to change the profession, I think that's really what helps get everybody on board, that if we can change the design process, maybe in the end, we can also change the construction process. So the why on the technology side was I've always been into 3D modeling. My early education was right when 3D Studio Max version one came out. You used to have to boot up into a separate like DOS operating system to run it. Like that's, and I love 3D modeling. I've always been into it. I've always, everything I've ever designed has always been in 3D in the various softwares as they've, you know, progressed throughout time. And it's always annoyed me that no matter what, we always took the 3D print that was fully coordinated and designed, and then we smooshed it down into a flat bunch of pieces of paper, printed it out, and handed it over to a contractor and said, here you go, build this thing now. And so the the long-term goal is to take that 3D model, and while it may not be 3D printed at the end, have a process that takes that 3D data and we can deliver the model as the construction documents and deliver that, whether it's part prefab or some sort of assembly line fabrication. And I really do think, and there's been some companies along the way that have thought in this respect, but if we don't start doing that now, you're going to see an Amazon come along and start you know, delivering residential houses that way, right? And you're going to start seeing you know, Walmart come and, you know, build apartment buildings. And we're going to further degrade our profession more and more and more if we don't get in front of all the technology and use it to deliver better design in the end, better than a Walmart or nothing against these companies are going to deliver. But we've got to be at the forefront of that as architects. We were, you know, in the early 1900s, we've just kind of let that go. And so that's really what the driver is, to be way ahead on the tech side in terms of the delivery of the process and then ultimately the built the built project. There's definitely this thread of intrinsic motivation that I'm catching throughout the entire thing. And that seems to be an important, I don't want to call it a metric, but a characteristic of people that work with you. Is that something that is part of your hiring process to identify? Because- when you're talking about being an early adopter, like that takes a certain level of motivation when it comes to learning tools, being willing to learn tools without instructions, being able to go on a journey with a startup as they develop and pivot the tool all over the place and try things out. It makes me think of like when the iPad came out, right? And Steve Jobs held this thing up and said, I don't know what you're going to do with this. He's talking to the developers, right? He's like, I don't know what you're going to do with this, but I, I know it includes things I've never imagined, right? And it takes a certain mindset and, it, and an intrinsic motivation from people to say, yes, absolutely, I'm going to figure out something that I would be interested in that thing doing. Uh, and, and to me, that, that is kind of where some of the magic happens. It's not all going to stick, but the ones that do can be catalyzing for other ideas it can be they can catalyze change in the firm they can they can do so many things and and to me like identifying those people getting back to kind of identifying people who are motivated who do trend towards the left side of the graph of early adoption and early innovators and things like that has got to be a a really important component for you yeah, it definitely, it definitely is. And it is about the people and what, you know, gets them excited and, and what motivates them ultimately. And, you know, I'm thinking about when we first started the design lab, we had eight initiatives that we were going to pursue. And, you know, I don't think virtual reality was even one of them. And it's just funny how it adopt, you know, it adapted to become all about that. And, you know, as we plan and have new initiatives, there's been random spinoffs that, you know, some have worked, some haven't worked. I mean, we've, we've tried, we've made our own drone um, that could fly inside to do surveys for us. And we thought that was a really cool idea and we tried to get it to work. And then in the end, you know, Matterport exists now, so we don't need that thing, right? We had a crazy idea about a, a lawn mowing app 
that and and we actually created an entire app on you know uh, automated lawn mowing for your residential house so you could pick you know the way your lawn mower would stripe the grass and you know do the edging and all sorts of stuff and we went and tried to pitch that idea turns out that was really kind of silly but it was fun to develop and you never know where but that got us so then we realized all right well we should have more apps and we developed internal apps. Um, so when COVID hit, we were really good at making our own app. We had our own check-in app, you know, to identify how many people were in the actual office. And if it reached, you know, beyond the 25% that New York City allowed, you'd get, everyone would send out a warning to everybody on their phone that, you know, our app has reached its max occupancy. <laughs> so those kind of Again, the journey and, and, you know, kind of spitballing and thinking about these different ideas, that's been a lot of fun. And there's so many cool things that we're doing now. And who knows, maybe just absolutely none of them will come to, you know, fruition. But then there might be, you know, a few things that come out of it that lead us down a, a new path um, that, that creates something totally different. I want to finish up and talk about this from like a leadership point of view. Obviously, being the president of the company, you're you're juggling things like what your unique value proposition is, what your differentiators are about your, you and your competitors running the business side of things from a revenue standpoint, staffing, hiring, all these things. A question that came up when I was running digital practice at HMC architects was we want you to establish what the ROI of this, this is. And I want to hear from your standpoint, if that even matters or because to me, and I guess I'll just preload my expectation with how you approach this question, which is I could come back and say, well, tell me the ROI of design. It's very hard to measure. Right. And, and is it the question I, I actually have is, is it even worth measuring or is it just something that you must do right? Like, and it doesn't mean there is a prescriptive way to do it. It doesn't mean that there is a menu and you should, you should check three things on the menu off that you're going to do this year. But obviously the approach is going to be different for everybody. But from your perspective, does that matter? Does the ROI of technology in this, because I think there's a lot of people out there who are trying to get these initiatives in front of leadership who don't necessarily have that long-term view. They don't necessarily have that kind of early adopter mentality and they've got to do a lot of convincing and a lot of people get shut down in these kinds of things. So coming from your standpoint, I think there's a perfect opportunity for you to attract some new talent to Mancini Duffy. But like, what, what is your perspective on that? Yeah, so the ROI to me, I'd have to say with it, it, it almost, it's not that it doesn't matter, but it's not really measurable. Because there are certain things on ROIs that we can we can measure, right? But if I were to take the tool belt and the design lab and the the process that we've developed, I couldn't tell you what the ROI is. There's just no way to measure it because I may have won a project because of it. I may not have. It may be because of the relationship I had. Or it could have put me over the edge in some way to win that job. The the the, the lab and the, the the tool belt, you know, it could be keeping a lot of people at the firm engaged when they may not have been engaged if we were just kind of doing the sort of project to project thing. They may have ideas somewhere in their head that they haven't even figured out or know how to express yet. And they're waiting for that moment to, to talk about them. So there's no way to measure what that is. I mean, the, the way that I try to measure kind of everything is that if, if the key people at our organization are happy and they're still looking to hire their friends and they're out there promoting how great of a company we are and what we do well and what we, you know, and they're willing to learn new things. And frankly, you know, they're again, they're happy, then that to me is a success and that we're growing. As long as we're growing and that things are moving in a positive direction, I think that's the best ROI I can, I can really measure. Yeah, it's a great way to put For it. For me, with all the things that you, you mentioned, the reality is that my job, the, the thing I do most of is try to win work. 
So, of uh, you know, it all kind of plays together between the podcast and the, you know, and the, the technology side of things and running the firm and and but but at the end of the day, you know, I'm. I'm going to breakfast, lunch, and dinner with clients, prospective clients, brokers, developers. I'm trying to establish relationships. I'm doing the same thing that I'm doing with the firm. It's long-term. I'm not looking for a project that night I have a dinner. I'm looking for that project within the next 10 yeah, years. You're right? pioneering. You're, you're prospecting. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, that, I don't know, it, again, very difficult to met, truly measure you know, it all plays in in some way. And I would imagine that there's a lot of fuel there for you in to fuel the conversations that you're having with excitement to get people excited about doing work with you guys. Because like, quote unquote, winning work is not just committing to and delivering a project. It is It is the process which you guys have reinvented so that you are excited about the architectural practice that you are running so that you can do that over the long term, but also for those clients who engage with you throughout the life of what it takes to deliver that project. And I can imagine that you get a lot out of fueling these initiatives inside because those directly correlate to you being able to speak about that excitement and the synergies that are happening within the firm that they could then be a part of if they were to hire you. Exactly. Exactly. hundred yeah. percent. Awesome. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up. I really appreciate this conversation. It's It's been fantastic. And it's not too often that we get to speak to the president of a firm and kind of ha who has this higher level overview of all of these moving parts and the complicated nature of, of the beast that is running an architectural practice. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I mean, it's been a great conversation. I I, I just think you, you asked me some interesting questions along the way that I, I haven't been asked in that in that way. So I hope I hope it was valuable to you and, and, and to the audience and, uh, you know, happy to have a dialogue with anyone. Awesome. So, uh, if, if they have any questions, well, where can people follow you guys and, and watch your journey and learn more about Mancini Duffy and, and you? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, really my LinkedIn, um, which is, I think it's just C Giordano. You can find, find us. And then obviously mancini.duffy.com is links to everything. Um, we do have the antiarchitect.com. I believe it's up and running and in terms of a website, but the anti-architect podcast, you can listen to on kind of all those, all the same and channels. You've had as, some as fantastic you. guests on there. Definitely a little bit of crossover Thank with you. the show as well. So, um, if you want to hear a other conversations with similar people. It, it's fantastic. So thank you so much, Christian. So this much. has been a, a great conversation. I'll put links to all those things in the show notes for the episode and uh, talk to you again. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co slash podcast, where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E. Troxel. Talk to you soon.